Hey everyone, this is Eve from Fieldwire with a special episode from From the Ground Up. And today I'm joined by uh, Carl Bayer for a very important discussion about suicide prevention and mental health awareness in the construction industry. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Eve. Look forward to having this conversation. So, Cal, you're part of the Construction Industry Alliance for Suicide Prevention, but that's not your day job, right? No, it's been a second full-time job for the last five years, but I work for a company called CSDZ. We're a 100-year-old firm specializing in insurance, risk management, surety, and employee benefits. I have the title of Vice President of Workforce Risk and Worker Wellbeing, and I started this job on March 16th the day before the rest of the world went work from home, shelter in place. My job during COVID has been taking care of people. So I've had the opportunity to do about 75 webinars across the country for various construction associations and labor unions. And it's been a powerful time to be taking care of people. It's my passion, it's my calling, and uh, it's been a mission. I'm really happy to have you on the show. I think suicide prevention and mental health awareness is especially important right now, as we find a lot of our coworkers in isolated situation. So for those who don't know, September is actually National Suicide Prevention Month, and that's what triggered this discussion with Carl. And maybe to give a quick introduction about Carl. So Carl is part of an organization that is called the Construction Industry Alliance for Suicide Prevention. The organization was started in 2016, and Carl has done a lot of webinars and events online to raise awareness. And that's why we have you on the show since you've campaigned so tirelessly for mental health awareness. So before we dive deeper into the work you've been doing, can I ask, why is this topic so important to you, Carl? You know, Eve, it started for me as a teenager. I saw my mother respond to the loss of a son of one of her cousins. And I saw her compassion. I saw the pain that the family had. And about six months later, there was a suicide in our neighborhood. And again, I saw how my mother rallied around people and took care of that family. I then went to work in healthcare through high school and college, and I took care of a lot of families. And the one pain that it seemed we could never take the sting away from was the death of a suicide. And that stuck with me. And every job I've had since that time has involved mental health or suicide prevention in one way or another. So it's very important to me because for many years, people were afraid to talk about suicide. They were afraid to talk about mental health and it kept people from getting help and people then were suffering in silence and then those people slipped through the cracks. In 2015, I lost a dear friend and I realized I hadn't been bold enough as a leader that I allowed the stigma to interfere and it forced me to be more emphatic about suicide as a safety topic. Back in 2008, I talked about suicide prevention as the next frontier in safety, but I only talked about it in terms of mental health awareness. And what I realized until I talked about suicide as a safety, health, and wellness topic, people didn't feel the urgency. And I think after my friend Jeff passed away, people heard it in my voice. They recognized the urgency They could feel that pain, and I was resolved to declare war on suicide, that there was going to be no more without me giving it my best effort. Powerful words you have there. I remember uh, one of my friends in university did commit suicide, and there was a sense of 
helplessness and maybe some responsibility of could we have done something different? Because in this case, he had been on suicide watch for a week before he did it. And we just left him alone for a short amount of time and then he went like that. So it's always very difficult. And I think what happens prior and what happens after, I think a lot of us feel ill-equipped to deal with it. It's so exceptional. It's always very difficult to find the right words, as you say, or find the right actions to deal with it. Yeah. Sorry for that uh, painful experience. I think we're better as a society than we've been in the past. We're more open to conversations about mental health and especially with this movement toward well-being, looking at the holistic person and recognizing that it's okay to not be okay. But in that case, ill-equipped was the right word. Very few of us were equipped on how to handle someone on, quote, suicide watch. There was no instructional guide. There was no video series. There was no TV show. There was no Wikipedia about how to help someone in a time of need. And what we found, Eve, is by making this a safety, health, and wellness topic, we were able to move this upstream to get people help before a time of crisis. And that was really an important part of what this movement became, getting people help, realizing if we talk about it, people will get help. And if people can get help, they can recover. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in this case, we're talking specifically about the construction industry and dealing with suicide in the construction industry. From what I know, we're dealing with the rate of suicide that is higher than other industries. Why do you think that is the case? I think there are a lot of factors, Eve. We have identified what makes construction a high-risk population. In 2010, working with that National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, I proposed after about six months that construction had so many risk factors, we could designate it as a high-risk population. We took kind of a public health approach. There was no data that showed us that there was a problem, but there were all these risk factors. So I've been primarily a safety, health, and risk management professional. And so what we saw was a culture that was old school, multi-generational, passed down in the DNA to newcomers to our field. We didn't talk about our feelings. We didn't talk about emotions. We have that tough guy, tough gal culture, and we buck up and get the job done. And we also have other risk factors. Our industry historically had been tolerant of substance use and alcohol misuse. And even though we've done drug testing now for over 20 to 25 years, doing testing alone is not enough. If someone has an issue, we have to educate them. We have to focus more on prevention and we have to focus on getting people help. We also have very demanding work conditions, very harsh environmental conditions. Those two come into play. In a career in the trades, our bodies can break down. And that leads to chronic pain from soft tissue injuries, the muscular skeletal injuries. That led to a high use of prescription opioids. And a lot of people unwittingly fell into the trap of opioids taking medication their doctor gave them to get better. And in 2015, 2016, our industry had the highest prescription opioid use. And that became another high risk factor for us. 
So I'm hearing all those risk factors, like a predominantly male population, which we know has a higher fatality due to suicide, opioids, alcohol. In practical numbers, how much more at risk are we than basically the national average maybe, and how much more at risk than other causes of fatalities? Like how big of a problem is this for the industry? So what's really frustrating with the numbers is they're always lagging indicators. And number two, they're always underreported. There was no study of suicide by occupation in the U.S. until 2016. And Eve, it used 2012 data from only 17 states. So when we say the numbers are grossly underreported, it's true. What the data shows is that in construction, three and a half to four times conservatively, more deaths by suicide. And more people die by suicide in construction than by all other occupational types of injuries. So we have a standard. It's really a set of regulations called the Focus 4, and it's from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And their Focus 4 comprises the four leading types of fatalities in construction. So it's falls from elevation. It's struck by, caught between, and electrocution. Those four comprise about 60% of the annual fatalities in construction. And that would be about 600 out of 1,000, roughly, occupational fatalities. It's estimated that there could be as many as 5,500 suicide deaths in construction, or about 15 per day. Most of these don't happen at work. So in 2018, the last year that there's complete data, there were 48,400 suicides roughly, and about 400 happened at work, the remainder at home or elsewhere. So it hasn't really been something that got a lot of attention in the workplace because of that stigma I talked about earlier. All right. So if I was skeptical about the importance of the matter, once again, I want to restate the numbers. In our industry, we're four to five times more at risk than the average, than the national average, to die from suicide fatality. And in terms of the individual craftsmen on site, probably more likely to die from a suicide than to die from the leading cause of fatalities on a job site. And Eve, just because people in our industry do like numbers, the general rate of suicide in the U.S. population is 14.2 per 100,000. In construction, for males, it's about 49, roughly. And then some trades have a much higher rate. So in 2020, in January, new data came out that broke down suicide by major trade. They called it occupation. So within the industry of construction, they looked at different trades. And a few trades were as high as 79 and 78. Iron workers were one. Millwrights were another. But all told, there were about 11 trades that were well higher than the industry average for construction. So let's imagine for a second that I am somebody that is suffering from just mental distress right now, and I'm hearing this podcast, how do I approach 
the situation? Like, who should I talk to? You know, what do you have as an advice for somebody who might be feeling alone right now? If you are that person and you feel pain, if you feel a loss of hope, if you're feeling isolated and alone, there are people who care about you. And there are people who will help you. If you're that person who's seeking help, there is light. Don't give up. Follow the light. Look for helpers. In the short term, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number is 800-273-8255. And there are wonderful volunteers who are there to help you and to guide you and to make sure you get help. If you're not comfortable with the telephone, if you don't feel like it's confidential and quiet enough where you're at and you prefer to text, there's a service called Crisis Text Line. And you can text HELP or CONNECT to 741-741. And again, it's a volunteer service. In both cases, you'll have a short wait. If you use the text service, you'll get a reply that says they're finding you a counselor. And usually that comes within about 15 to 20 seconds. And please just know that those services are there for your time of need. I've used both services for myself, for family, for friends, and for many construction workers. And these are life-saving services. So please, if you're that person that Eve described that's in pain, there is hope, there's help, and you can recover. This is a really powerful message. And if you were seeing me right now, I'm fighting back tears because we care and we're there for you. That's our purpose is to help tradespeople get help. And even if it's not for you, it could be for your family. Just know that those same people are there to care for your loved ones. Thanks, Carl, for those contacts. And once again, I think when we're isolated, it's very important to reach out to the ones that care about us and to talk more. Because one of the things we don't talk about, especially with, with male suicide, is that sometimes it's really hard to tell that somebody's struggling from the outside. There are often very, very few signs that somebody's struggling. They might keep it inside. So, Carl, let's imagine that I'm on a crew right now or I'm foreman or project manager on a project. Like, What kind of signs should I pay attention to, to see distress, maybe in one of my coworkers or one of my teammates that may look normal from the outside? I think that's a really insightful question. Right now, during COVID, we're wearing face coverings as part of our, what's called social distancing. We prefer the term physical distancing because we don't want people to isolate. But the reality is we need to keep at least that six foot of separation. And with the face coverings, we're already struggling to see the nonverbal communications, the nonverbal clues that people give. When you have a face mask or a face covering, you have to really look at the eyes. You have to really listen for the voice. You have to really slow down and make that connection on a personal level. But I think your other point that was really insightful is how people are able to mask their feelings. Males in particular wear multiple layers of masks, and sometimes it's peeling them all off. And sometimes you'll get that tough bravado before someone says, hey, I'm struggling. Their behavior will might show it. But I would say right now, the warning signs that I look for 
would be isolation, someone who's gotten increasingly quiet, someone who has stopped sharing personal information, someone who appears to be despondent, doesn't have a quick first step, doesn't have a spark in their eye, a person who seems to maybe have given up, losing a little bit of hope. Maybe they're not talking about future plans. Maybe they're talking a lot about the past. Maybe they're a person who's more negative, someone who is now down, and it's hard to bring a smile to their face. It would be a change in their behavior. It would be a change in their attitude, a change in their outlook. Look for that change and then engage and ask, are you okay? The typical answer is going to be, I'm fine. Are you really? Yeah, I'm good. Are you sure? Yeah, I told you I'm fine. It doesn't seem like you're fine. And you're going to have to peel each of those little masks off to get that person to a point of being vulnerable. And one technique would be, I understand. I'm under a lot of pressure too. I'm feeling it. I've been talking to my family about the struggles I'm facing. Is there anything I can do to help you? And it takes that persistency. It takes that patience of not rushing it and just letting that person know you're there and letting them know I'll do whatever I can do to help you be better. And when someone knows you care, it does build that bond. It builds that connection. They're more apt to trust. So if you are empathetic, if you're showing compassion, if you're taking a genuine interest in what they said and not blowing it off, not dismissing it, that frequently will fill a person who is despondent or has lost hope that you could be the answered prayer. You could be the light that they've been seeking. You could be a key to unlocking that door of darkness and bringing them hope that they much need. It's interesting listening to you speak about that care and that connection that we have with each other. I know the industry is very dependent on that organic culture, that very in-person culture. And I think for a lot of tradesmen out there, being on the job site is a very important part of their social life and being with their crew and having that connection. And we have to know that with the situation right now, the level of isolation is unprecedented compared to what we may have seen in the past. Like, you know, some crews are on furlough sometimes in companies or they're not able to work in close proximity anymore or they're operating in degraded situations. So we have to be more proactive in terms of maintaining that that care and that link that we have with each other to make sure that we don't lose that bond that is essential for a lot of the men and women out there on the job sites. Yeah, even some of our folks who prefer to be alone and have quiet time, there is that connection. There is that sense of teamwork. There's that sense of accomplishment. It's the pride in our work of what we do. There's that sense of contributing to a greater good So if I use my hands to build something or I use my brain to help build something, there is that opportunity for us to have that deeper connection. I think that's really important, what you've just said. How do you find those opportunities? So I think in COVID, we've been encouraging people to maintain the physical distancing, you know, what others are calling social distancing, and then do more check-ins, do a brief safety huddle. Do your warm-up exercises. Take a break. Take a safety time out. Check in on people and ask people to share something good in their life. That's been a really great technique. I've had a lot of safety professionals that have used that and thanked me for offering that idea. 
Don't dwell just on the negative, but focus on the positive. Hey, who's got something to share? What's going really good in their life? And it's been a powerful opportunity to reframe some of the stress, reframe how people are feeling during COVID. At the company, what we've noticed is the chatter across different teams is not happening as much as it used to because everybody's working remote. I mean, we're a construction software company. And what we decided to organize is mandatory coffee chat. You get matched with somebody from another team every week and you have to spend 30 minutes on the phone with them talking about a couple of subjects. We even have questions for people to talk to each other. And it seems a little silly when you think about it. But what we found is people actually crave that social contacts with others. And it's not a good time to be afraid of being a little silly as long as you're helping people just feel that bond and just maintain that tissue that they have with other teammates and people in the organization. Yeah, I love that idea. I don't know, you could tell I was smiling pretty hard. I think that's a really powerful message I'm going to share with others about what Fieldwire is doing because I think it is building that connectivity and it's a really intentional strategy and you're getting good feedback. People are enjoying it. You use the word crave. I think people do crave that connection. And one of the turning points for us years ago in this movement is when I was working for a construction company here in the Pacific Northwest, we talked about if we have a true safety 24-7 culture, it wasn't enough to get people back home at the end of a shift safe. It was more important to get them back to work safe from home because people who were struggling with isolation relationship issues, substance use or misuse, financial pressures, relationship stress, etc. They were going to be struggling alone. But if we brought them back to work safe from home, we could take care of them. So a caring culture goes a long way at making people feel part of the team, part of the process. That's really insightful. So I've been listening to you for the last 20 minutes. I am really convinced that my company should do more to work on this we may not have a formal program in place to deal with people in isolation or emotional distress. What are the resources? Where should I start to make sure that my subcontractor or my general contractor becomes a better company at dealing with this? So the website that you talked about, the Construction Industry Alliance for Suicide Prevention, the URL is www.prevent constructionsuicide.com. It is a great repository of resources and information. You're going to have articles. There'll be some white papers. There'll be some videos. There'll be various tools available for you to implement. Sample toolbox talks. There's assessments. One is called an integration checklist. It shows you how to build in mental health and suicide prevention into your existing company processes. So it lets you do a needs assessment and a gap analysis kind of at the same time. And it's gonna give you ideas on how you can take baby steps and then how you can build this in over a one or two year time period. The most important thing is to take the first step. There is a training program online. It's offered by a program called Living Works. And that's on the same website. It's free through September 30th. After September 30th, it will be offered at a discounted rate of $15 per learner. 
It'll take about an hour to go through that program, and it's very effective, very high rate of feedback. So those would be some of the early steps I would recommend, Eve. And who should take that training? Is it everybody on the team? Is it mostly managers? The feedback has been great when people have done it broadly and made it available to employees. You can register online a whole team to take that. I think initially our industry, we kind of are skeptical, so a little bit of doubting Thomas. So I think we're always afraid to jump in. So we tend to have one or two people take one for the team and start the process. But I would encourage people to enroll more people and see if you can build that culture where people feel comfortable talking about this. Because if we can get peer leaders on job sites, those informal leaders helping with this culture, it's going to break the barriers down a lot quicker. So once again, thanks for those insights, Carl. I think it's very relevant. It's very actionable. If I'm on a team and I want to do something about this, the important thing to remember is we're dealing in normal times. We're four to five times the rate of suicide. That is the national average. And those are not normal times right now. Those are exceptional times where the isolation that our coworkers and teammates are dealing with is higher. Even if we get together as a crew on the job site, they might be isolated from family. They might be isolated from longtime friends. So it's really the moment to be proactive in how we deal with this and to charge in head on and find solutions for this. So Carl, I want to leave you the final words on that subject. What do you want to add to this? I think the most important message is that suicide can be preventable. And the second most important message, it can only be preventable if we talk about it. So don't be afraid. Our industry has no more elephants in the room. Before COVID, we had a problem with mental health, substance use, and suicide prevention. So did society. Our industry has done something remarkable, and we have tackled these tough issues. So for anyone who is in need, anyone who's afraid to talk about these topics, your employees are expecting you to. We've had over 200 articles since 2015 in various construction trade publications. People know about this. Don't be afraid. Bring it to them. Let them know you care. Let them know that you'll get them help. And that's how we're going to make a difference in the lives of our people. And the last message would be, it may not be you. It may not be your family. It could be a neighbor. It could be a stranger. But have the foresight to share those telephone numbers I gave you. So the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255 and crisis text line 741-741. And Eve, I want to thank you and Fieldwire for shining a light on suicide prevention during Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Thank you for uh, bringing that urgent subject to the table, Carl. And once again, Carl from the Construction Industry Alliance for Suicide Prevention, thank you so much for those actionable insights that people are going to be able to do something with. Thank you very much, Eve. 